There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you only look, then you will see On WCN-TV friends. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of WCN TV. This episode today is one that's going to certainly tug at your heartstrings. Some of you who have maybe had a similar experience recently are going to be able to relate. And uh, this is one that you're going to want to share with, with your friends and family and and reference people to this because this has become a very widespread occurrence. How is it possible, friends? How is it possible that the American healthcare system has become, can I say, a risky choice? Healthcare in America has become politicized, I might even say weaponized, and beholden to the pharmaceutical industry. And if you think that's an exaggeration, then you're not really paying attention. Now, I want to be clear about something as, as we get started today. I'm not condemning the frontline healthcare workers. Many of them are doing the very best that they can do under some extremely strenuous and trying circumstances. However, there are some that are just going along and not really giving healthcare. They're just following protocols and treatment plans with no thought or conscience as to the ramification of those things. The problem is with treatments and protocols. Why are doctors, for example, asking uh, patient advocates if they can intubate four, five, six, times when they've been refused repeatedly? Why are doctors asking if they can, can uh, put in place a DNR order and, and they're told repeatedly no? The American healthcare system, friends, has been incentivized. And I think that you're going to realize that perhaps for the first time very clearly today with my guests, you're going to see some some numbers that are just going to, well, they'll shock you. Day after day, 
I read stories all across America, very tragic circumstances that are impacting families and, and our communities. Well, my guests today, Scott, Cindy, and Jessica Shera, I appreciate you three joining me today. Welcome. Well, thanks for having us, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Well, I, I want to speak a little bit about grace and then I would I would like uh, for for you to to begin to share your experiences, um, and I want to applaud you first of all for for being willing to come on and share your story. Your your 19 year old daughter Grace died on October the 13th um, at a COVID hospital, and so that's only been a, a couple of months ago. And this is this is um, this would be difficult. If I was in your shoes, this would be very, very difficult. So thank you for joining me um, after such a, a, a very tragic circumstance befell your family. But this COVID hospital um, was following the government treatment protocols that, as I mentioned, continues to fail COVID patients and result in death. Many hospitals are committed to following what the government dictates and receive financial benefits for doing so. Grace's case highlights many of the abuses along with the dangers of financial temptation. This is, as I said, a very tragic story and one I hope will wake folks up to what's happening in many hospitals today and, and turn us I know that your family is a family of faith um, in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and um, by your own testimony, you've leaned heavily on him. But in our time today, we'll talk about who Grace was, care that she received, the specific combination of medi uh, medications that, um, well, should we use the word are suspected or alleged to have killed her and the financial incentives that COVID hospitals are offered. But most importantly, you'll discuss God's solution to this problem. So you, Scott, and your daughter, Jessica, were given the rare opportunity to witness what really happens inside the doors of a COVID hospital. The fear of COVID being spread by the media has the population convinced that they're to be very fearful of the virus. And this fear causes people to not challenge hospital policies, preventing advocates and family members and caregivers in the room with COVID patients. Now, as your family studied what happened with Grace, you, you, you became aware of thousands of similar cases where advocates attempted to push back, but the hospitals proceeded with their agendas anyway. It's, it's hard to believe that this is happening in America, but it is, friends. It is. So your family's conclusions are these. Once the hospital realized they would not convince you to give them authority to put grace on unnecessary uh, ventilator, at the doctor's discretion, it's probably a fact 
they'll they'll never confess to this, of course, that grace was worth more to them dead than alive. And that pains me to even say that. That's true. On the final day of Grace's life, after the doctor proclaimed how well Grace was doing, he unilaterally labeled Grace as a DNR and then a combination of, of IV sedatives and narcotics were administered over a short time frame that, that you and, and, and I likely would not survive, especially if we were already in respiratory distress. F- folks, after you hear the details, you be the judge, but I've got a strong, strong idea of the conclusion that you're going to arrive at. Now, before going public, just so you know, friends, before going public, the family submitted a detailed summary with supporting research to the hospital with a request to meet with the CEO and the doctor involved. The family recognized their ethical and biblical responsibility to give both of them the opportunity to discuss their perspectives. The hospital's response was a flat-out refusal to meet. So let's start today, Scott, Jessica, and and let's share with our, our viewers, our audience today, who was Grace? Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, so you mentioned about how hard it is to be here, and uh, because of Grace, it actually is makes it a lot easier. She was, she was a special kid. Uh, I'm just going to share a quick icebreaker to so you get a perspective of of, uh, of where she was at. So this was two years ago. She was deer hunting with me, and we're sitting in the deer stand, and and she said to me, "Dad, I have a joke for you." And I said, "Well, what's the what's the joke, Grace?" No, just consider she made this up on her own, and she said, "Well, where do bees go to the bathroom?" And I said, "I don't know. Where do they go to the bathroom?" And she said, the BP station. <laughs> that, that's our little grace. Well, Cindy, my wife, is going to uh, talk in a, a lot more detail about, about Grace. So you have a, a picture of her in your mind. As you mentioned, Mike, um, Grace was 19. Um, our special girl, Grace, had Down syndrome. And she always shared that her um, extra chromosome um, that she had was her love chromosome. And that's really who Grace was. She shared love with everyone, especially God's love. Um, she shined wherever she went. Um, she lived life. She loved life. Um, she rode horse. She danced. She sang in a choir. She was an actor. We homeschooled, so she got lots of cool opportunities to um, experience different things. She learned how to play violin and actually played for her sister's wedding. And uh, her teacher knew her love for Elvis Presley, so she always learned the Elvis Presley song on her violin. And um, she just, uh, she was capable of doing anything that we gave her the opportunity to. And that was one thing her Nick unit doctor told us, that to give Grace every opportunity and to look at her as though the sky's the limit. And she took that um, to everything that she did. Um, She just blossomed. Uh, she cheered up everyone through her text messages with emojis, or she colored them special pictures. She loved arts and crafts. Um, she just um, 
overall, she just blessed everyone that she came encounter with. She's touched so many lives. We've had so many people touch base with us and tell us how her life had blessed them. And um, that's how we feel that whatever Grace did in her lifetime, we would have never blessed her as much as she blessed us or taught her as much as she taught us. Uh, it was just overwhelming. She had hopes and dreams, just like all of us. She went to prom this year. It was her senior year, um, this coming year. And she was just looking forward to everything that we do. She wanted to have a dream job being at Graceland and, and being a tour guide and telling all about Elvis Presley. And um, she wanted to get married and she planned on living in a little apartment um, that we had kind of built um, on our own property. And she just, she had so many things that she wanted to do yet. So to have her life, you know, just taken away breaks our hearts because we had dreams for her too. Um, yeah. So overall, though, she she just was the best kid you could have ever imagined. And she shined for the Lord. And yeah. that's something we are so grateful for. We know where she's at. We truly know where she's at. Yes. You know, Jess wants to add something quick about her, too. By the way, Jessica's last name is Vander Hayden now, so she's married. So, all right, go ahead. So I just wanted to add that Grace was the best sister and aunt. Um, she would tell us that she was not an ant, though, because she was not an insect. <laughs> she she always thought of others, enjoyed life, and truly showed God, God's love through her actions. And the big thing, this time of the year, Girl Scout cookies um, start to be sold. And Grace loved being a Girl Scout. And um, every year she'd sell a thousand boxes. She was just on fire, and she just brought so much joy to all of her customers and you know, it's, it's another thing where she's going to be missed all around. So. Yeah. So just uh, share one one thing more about Grace to give you a sense of her. So Grace had a following. You know, everybody that knew her knew her. And I, I knew about her, and uh, I was just known as Grace's dad. Anyway, Grace, Grace, um, she her sense of God was was quite unique. So she called me earthly dad. Which I mean, who does that? It was just right. really, it was really a neat thing. So that's uh, that's grace. Well, that's a depth of understanding of uh, of theology that most nineteen year olds <laughs> do not grasp. So that's that's pretty amazing, actually. So um, let's let's uh, and, and I did see Smith. I don't know if you have them available, but you, you talk about grace. Uh, had a following. She she was beloved by by many friends, and uh, there were a couple of letters that you had actually received from from her friends. And I don't know if you have those or not, Spencer. But if not, well, we can put them up there at some time during this during this conversation. But but let's move into um, Cindy or or Scott into the details of the care or or Jessica, um, whichever cares to um, to comment on this, but. The details of her care in the in the COVID hospital uh, that she she received, um, she went in because her her uh, uh, oxygen levels were a little lower than acceptable. And were you confronted immediately with this request for a ventilator? No. So I'll just uh, give you a look, take one more step back. So we had um, Grace on the frontline doctors protocol. Um, as soon as we, as soon as she got a cold, what we thought was a cold, and that was around September 28th, 
we were going to go to a wedding on the 1st of October. And because of going to a wedding, we tested her with a home test kit and found out she was positive. And ultimately, over the next several days, we were just taking care of her at home, mainly Cindy was, with the with the frontline doctor's protocol and uh, everything seemed to be going fine. Then around day eight or nine, which we have found out through research, and this also happened with me, I, I went into the hospital three days after Grace died with almost the identical symptoms. And some of the research has shown that even though you're following uh, a preventative protocol like frontline doctors, you can still end up in the hospital if you have a propensity to for allergies is one of the things mm-hmm. that has been found out. So both Grace and I had that. Uh, we ended up with low oxygen. So we took Grace on October 6th to the urgent care and they recommended because she one of her blood tests showed that she had a high propensity to blood clot. We took her to the emergency room to do a CT scan on October 6th. Ultimately, that CT scan was negative for clots, but the emergency room doctor uh, suggested that we admit her to the hospital. And that's when the whole process started. So um, once we got into the hospital, so we, we were in the emergency room for about 10 hours. We got into a hospital room about midnight um, on the 6th. So then the day on the 7th was pretty much a normal day. Grace and I were, I was, uh, well, I'll actually step back because this is kind of the first introduction to advocacy too. She, um, when they said that they wanted to admit her to the hospital in the emergency room, I said, well, then I'll be going, I'll be staying with her. And they said, well, you can't, Our, our hospital policy doesn't allow that. And so I said at that point, then I said, I'll be taking Grace home then. And so then the the one of the nurses that was taking care of us in the ER said, well, let me check on something. She came back two hours later and said, um, we're allow, we're going to allow you in her room with one condition, which is you can't leave. And that was, of course, fine. I didn't have any place to go. And so now, so midnight, we get into the room. Uh, you know, Grace is on oxygen. Um, but, I mean, she was fine. We're goofing around went to sleep. We got up the next day. Uh, we ordered off the menu. Everything was just just normal. We had expected that she'd be in the hospital three, four days, maybe a week tops. And so the first day was just uh, just a, a relaxing day. We watched the movies, goofed around. And ultimately, um, toward the end of that first day, the first full day, which was on the 7th, she was getting irritated with the uh, nasal cannula that they had been using. They used what's called a high flow cannula and that was irritating her. And so we we worked um, on and off over uh, several hours to get her on a BiPAP, which uh, the picture on the screen right now shows her on a BiPAP mask. Um, so that was a bit of a struggle, but ultimately after that was done, she she uh, gave me a hug and said, sorry, dad. And so then the next morning at eight o'clock, a doctor came into the room and this was the first opportunity where we had um, the challenge with a, a ventilator. He came in at eight o'clock and said to me, you're going to have to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And so I said, what is that recommendation based on? And he said, well, 
we did uh, blood gas numbers uh, last uh, from yesterday, and and uh, they show she needs to be on a ventilator. And so I asked, what time were the numbers taken? What time was the blood gas draw taken? And he said at 11.30. And so I said, you know, we just got done uh, wrestling on and off with Grace over over the last the several hours before that blood gas was taken. Her blood pressure was 235 over 135 after that. Her beats per minute were 150. So I said, I, I don't think that test is accurate. So I'd like you to retake it. So they took retook it. Um, and of course the numbers were fine. So she didn't need a ventilator at all. But that was the first time that we were um, put on the spot to decide. The later times, I'm just going to cover that now because I can. The later times were not that there was an event that caused it. The later times were based on the idea they presented a, um, they framed, they framed the issue that the, the words that they used were this, these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. So that was how they tried to sell us on the idea of giving them the authority to put her on a ventilator anytime they wanted, not when we wanted, anytime they wanted. Uh, and so we refused that four different times. Now, we, if we move forward into the next day, uh, I'm just going to share this one example because it, it really gives a, a perspective of how her care was. And I would say her care was um, not good. It was certainly below average, but this is an example to just show you. Um, so on this was on Saturday the 9th. Grace uh, was getting pretty hungry, even though we had eaten on the seventh. She didn't eat much on the eighth. She was pretty hungry, and so she uh, she said, "Dad, I want to get something to eat." So I ordered. So I'll just a little sidebar there. Grace wanted ice cream, chocolate milk, and bacon. So that was so she could have whatever she wanted at that point. So that's what I ordered. I tried to feed her. I started not tried. I started feeding her, and the nurse came running in and said, "You can't do that." I said, "Well." What's the reason? And she said, well, her oxygen saturation is only at 85. And so I looked at the screen. I see it on, on the hospital screen. So I had my own meter in the room because I was expecting to get COVID because Grace had COVID. I figured I would get COVID while I was there. So I had my own oxygen sat meter in the room. And so I waited about a half hour, maybe 45 minutes. I put my meter on Grace's finger, and it read 95 instead of 85. Okay. So I called the nurse back in, and I asked, is my meter inaccurate or is yours? And she said, ours is. I said, well, what, what's the reason? And she said, well, these leads get sweaty. So then I said, well, what is the reason you don't change them out? If that's a known fact, you're using – the oxygen saturation is a primary um, mm -hmm. statistic for my daughter's care. Why don't you just change out the leads every four hours or whatever it needs to happen so that they don't get sweaty? And she snottily responded, you should just be thankful that you caught this. I mean, you can't make it up. And wow. in, uh, in reviewing Grace's uh, hospital bill, in the seven days she was there, they changed out that lead only three times. And the cost that they billed, so this isn't the cost that the hospital pays, but the cost that they billed per changeout was only $78. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, why didn't, why weren't they changing them out every couple hours? I mean, it was ridiculous. But anyway, that gives you a perspective of the care. There's, and there's another 50 examples you could share, but it gives you that perspective. Yes. Yes. Then, um, did you want to ask another question right now, Mike? Or? No, no. Go ahead and continue with, with the uh, narrative of, of those days. So the next significant thing that happened was on October 10th. So that was Sunday, Sunday morning at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, the head nurse came in and with an armed guard and announced that uh, she said to me, you need to leave immediately. And I said, what's the reason? And she said, uh, you've been shutting off the alarms at night, which I defended because I had the nurses train me how to shut them off. And the reason I had them train me is they were going off in the neighborhood of 20 times a night. And many times it would take them 30 minutes to get in. So I had them train me how to shut them off so that, that we could get some sleep. Um, and then the second thing she said is the, there's been several shifts of nurses who have complained about you being in the room. And of course they were complaining because I was challenging the care, as I said with that last example. Um, so, you know, she wasn't in the mindset of wanting to listen to reason. Um, and so the armed guard walked me out to my truck and he said to me, uh, he listened to this back and forth, which was about an hour. And he said, you know, you need to take this higher up. He, he knew what the deal was. So now uh, we don't have an advocate in the room. So this is the first time my, my wife has reminded me, this is the first time we've ever left Grace alone. Um, you know, strangely, you know, we were still, this is, this is a major message to anybody listening, is that you have this sense of trusting the white coat. And you, you can't do that unless they've earned your trust. You know, so we trusted that white coat. And who would ever think that they would want to do something to hurt, hurt our daughter? Anyway, um, fortunately, yeah, it was a Sunday, which I think is also interesting. Thankfully, our special needs attorney was available. And so she uh, coached me on how to handle things Monday morning. Um, I got on the phone Monday morning and ultimately got a call back about one o'clock. And the the patient relations person who called back wanted our attorney and the hospital attorney to talk. So I forwarded to her our attorney's information. Um, they talked and, and negotiated. It seemed strange. Why are you negotiating advocacy? You know, not only was Grace disabled because she had Down syndrome, she was allowed an advocate because she's disabled, but anybody's allowed an advocate. So don't be fooled when they tell you that, that you can't have somebody in the room with you. They're just relying on a policy and they're expecting you to back down, meaning the hospital's expecting you to back down because they tell you it's their policy. You, every patient has a right to an advocate. Uh, and so there's no reason that we had to fight this. Anyway, then Jessica, I had talked with her that morning and asked her to be on standby as soon as this was negotiated. So Jessica got there within about 15 minutes. So that was roughly 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday. Then 
they would only let her stay until seven, even though the attorneys had agreed she could stay overnight. They had communicated it to the floor. So then she had to go home that night at seven. So we, in total, lost advocacy for about 44 hours total. Yeah, that's a pretty significant time because during that time, you're going to see Grace's chart from the last day in a bit. Um, during that time, they were slowly ratcheting up a sedation drug called Presidex during that window. And they were doing that regardless of us being there because they didn't feel the need to communicate their decisions to us. They were making these decisions unilaterally. But at least with us there, it seemed like you had a small opportunity to stop things. So yeah. Jessica, Jessica ended up getting done in the room um, Tuesday morning when visitation started at 11 and was able to stay that night, Tuesday night. And um, I'm going to have, unless you have a question now, Mike. Um, well, I just, wanted to, I just wanted to ask, Scott, you, you mentioned uh, Presidex. That's a, um, a a medication that's used for anesthesia to put sleep, people to sleep for surgery? Yeah, this is serious business. So what's going on with this Presidex? Um, I'm going to read some things about it so you, you have a full spectrum of what's going on. But um, So the package insert for Presidex, so this term package insert, yeah, are the rules that the hospital is supposed to follow when they administer a med. And so the package insert for Presidex says it's not supposed to be used for more than 24 hours. Well, they use this on Grace for five continual days, <coughs> even though the package insert says uh, to not use for more than 24 hours. And so they were they were sedating her. One of the um, RNs that that Cindy found online had said that the the purpose of this is to set the patient up for um, being on a ventilator, the doctor that we have been working with to help us make some sense out of things, I'm going to read her note uh, regarding Presidex. So she she says, Presidex is a med used for anesthesia and to put people to sleep for surgery and procedures. Depending on the dose, it can induce a coma-level sleep. Each of these meds, Presidex, lorazepam, and morphine, which you're going to see all three of these on the timeline in a bit, on their own, have an increased risk of serious or life-threatening breathing problems and cardiac arrest. And there's an additive effect when used in combination to use them like they did in a person with a diagnosis of acute respiratory distress is beyond believable as to intention. But this is a serious med. Mm -hmm. um, and what we've, what we've recently learned is that once a person is on a sedation med to try to get them out of the hospital is uh, would be quite a hoop because it's called AMA against medical advice. So once they've convinced a patient or unilaterally put a patient on a sedation med, it's it's a lot tougher to get them out. So it's it's something you don't want. There's there was just no need. You know, Grace was a uh, Grace didn't need to be sedated at all. She. She needed to when we were wrestling with her that first night, but after that, she didn't need sedation whatsoever. Yeah. And what we've learned too, Mike, is that um, there's a couple drugs that the government gives um, a financial incentive to be using. And so having Grace on Presidex, and also what we've learned is people that are put on remdesivir 
it allows the hospital to get a kickback of money because now they can label the room that your loved one is in as an ICU room, but you never leave that room. It's, you're never on the ICU wing. You are labeled that. The care is not at that level, but yet they can call your room an ICU room and get a huge financial benefit. So it's amazing to know the pro protocol that the government has money incentive. And that was one of them, along with just entering a hospital, getting on that med, being put on a ventilator was another way to kick out money to them. Um, and then each day you're there and then in, in the end was death, but their money that's there coming in for these doctors and hospitals is just ludicrous. And so we can review are. the yeah we can review the money in a little bit more detail after we get through the timeline because I think it's important that people understand that there's a there's a, a there's a very specific money trail involved here. So yeah. Jessica, I'd do like you need the timeline back up, Scott? Um, actually, maybe we should do the timeline first, then Jessica can, can read the details of the last. Okay. Want to do that? Thank you, thank All right. So this timeline. Um, this was extrapolated from the detailed doctor's records that that we reviewed um, after Grace died. So what you see on this timeline first is I started this at midnight on the 13th. The 13th was Grace's last day. And you'll see that there's three meds that are listed here, Presidex, Lorazepam, Morphine. And what you see in with the Presidex specifically is it's in terms of units. And the reason it's units is the hospital records don't disclose what that is. If it's milligrams, milliliters, we don't know. Um, there's some internal computation they're doing. But what's relevant for that number is that when Grace um, was on the short-term sedation when we were working with the BiPAP that first evening, she was on 0.1 units. And then she was taken off the next day. And then over the next five days leading up to her last day, they kept slowly inching the Presidex up. And you can see at 1048 a.m. on her last day, she was at 1.4 units, which is 14 times the level she was considered, uh, that they considered necessary to help her get the BiPAP situation situated the first night. So now if you walk through this, now, she's on 1.4 uh, units of Presidex starting at 1048. Uh, you can see the progression. Then if you just keep going through the day, now at 1025, they administered lorazepam. Um, then you keep going through. So lorazepam is, is in the class of drugs called benzos, which we'll, we'll cover in a minute. So that was for anxiety. Then at 5.46, they did another half a milligram of lorazepam. Three minutes later, literally three minutes later, another half a milligram of lorazepam. Then at 6.15 p.m., a two milligram morphine IV push. So that was in an instant, they gave her two milligrams, not by a drip. So if you add these together in that window of 29 minutes, she was on Presidex, lorazepam, and morphine all in 29 minutes. That's the dose that would have put any of us over the top. And you know what's maybe more the most surprising, 6.45 that night, the doctor called Cindy and I at home 
and said Grace had a good day. He just administered morphine to slow her breathing down. Well, what he had just administered was the final dose to to kill her. That's what just happened. Um, so I want to zero in on one other thing. So you'll see on the bottom I have the package insert notes. Yes. Spencer, do you, can you see that or no? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so on the package insert notes, I specifically want to call out morphine. So what's going on with these package inserts? They have warning labels, and the most significant warning label on a package insert is called a black box warning. The black box warning, I'm going to read this right off of the Presidex package insert, or not, I'm sorry, the morphine package insert. It says specifically that concurrent use with a benzo, for, which is lorazepam, and or a CNS, which is Presidex, may result in profound sedation, respiratory depression, coma, and death. Reserve concurrent prescribing for use in patients for whom alternative treatments are inadequate. Follow the patient for signs and symptoms of respiratory depression and sedation. There's a further warning on the on the first page of the morphine package insert that says they're supposed to have the reversal drug immediately available. So now when you hear Jessica's story and we talk about the DNR, they could have reversed this. They're supposed to have it immediately available by law on the package insert, but they didn't do it. So we know that, I mean, it's a hospital. They had to have had it, but they chose to not use it to, to save our daughter. Would this be a good time, um, Scott, for Jessica to come in and, and share? Yeah, so Jess, um, she wrote what she has to say because of wanting to not miss anything. So she's going to yep. go through that now. And so yep. everybody yep. has some patience while she, she does that. Absolutely. Hi. So I'd like to start by telling you how well Grace was doing on Monday, October 11th. When I got there, she was herself minus a BiPAP mask on. She was laughing and talking to me. I was even planning on coloring with her the next day. Tuesday night, we FaceTimed my boys, her nephews. She told them hi, boys, as loud as she could. She tickled me even and was apologizing to me for tooting. I was a seat overnight Tuesday, and my head was resting by her butt. And she'd always say, girls, girls toot, boys fart. And she would keep apologizing to me for tooting that night. And she just was having a, a great night. Anyways, once I had the night nurse put Grace on her belly, Tuesday night into Wednesday morning, she had the best night yet. Oxygen was 99% almost all night. And for people listening, not knowing, um, your oxygen levels are typically better if you're on your belly or if you're sitting up like in a, a chair at a 60 degree angle um, for COVID for the oxygen numbers. So she just had a, a great night. So a lot did take place Monday, Tuesday, but the main focus I believe is on, on Wednesday, her final day of the 13th. So I wanna go into that as a lot took place. Wednesday morning, I chose to leave to shower as the nurse wouldn't allow me to shower in Grace's room. 
It was an absolute, absolute no, I was told. This is quite interesting. As my dad was told, he couldn't leave Grace's room and showered there. I felt comfortable enough to leave to shower as Grace had a great night. She was still sleeping, and I felt okay with the nurse who was there, as this nurse seemed to do a decent job on Tuesday. As I look back on all the details, it seems to me that this nurse was trying to gain my trust so their protocols could continue to happen. When I came back roughly an hour later, I overheard the nurse and two doctors talking in the hallway about Grace being put in restraints and upping her anxiety medication. One doctor commented that the family isn't going to like that. I questioned what had happened and was told Grace had tried to get out of bed if she wanted to use the bathroom. I was informed that they did these things for Grace's safety as they didn't want her to hurt herself trying to get out of bed. And I was told they would turn down the anxiety med after she had calmed down, which they never turned down. This medication they always referred to as an anxiety med, I later researched after Grace had died and found this was actually a sedative called Presidex. The hospital staff never used the word sedative around me, not even once. It's pretty obvious to why they didn't use that word. The feeding tube was the next big thing that happened Wednesday. My parents informed me after Grace had passed that the nurses were to try and feed Grace prior to the feeding tube to confirm the feeding tube was actually needed. This never took place. Trying to feed Grace never even happened before this process. What was told to my parents and what was actually taking place were complete opposites. There was also no communication to me from the hospital staff unless I asked a question. This wasn't the only time something like this took place. Continuing on, the feeding tube process was very stressful for Grace and myself and this process seemed to really exhaust Grace. At least that was my assumption, not knowing she was sedated. Now knowing she was sedated, it makes sense why she was so out of it. There was no reason to sedate Grace. She was fully capable of communicating and telling you what she needed and wanted and overall a calm person, but none of this was even taken into consideration. It seems Grace was only sedated so they didn't have to tend to her much and so their plan could succeed. Their plan to take another life in our eyes. There came a time Wednesday evening where the hospital monitors weren't reading correctly. The hospital monitor was reading Grace's oxygen around 50%. I grabbed our finger oxygen meter and it read 93%. I took a deep breath as I knew she was okay. The doctor came in to do an evaluation on Grace, checking for blood clots, etc., which she didn't have any. The hospital oxygen monitor was switched to Grace's earlobe instead of her finger since the reading wasn't accurate. Her earlobe read in the 90s even hit 100% at times. I was informed by the doctor that he was concerned with the wave patterns of her oxygen. After evaluating Grace, I overheard the doctor and nurse say they were going to give her morphine. I asked why and was told it was to slow her breathing so she could take nice deep breaths really letting that oxygen get to her lungs. She was breathing 55 breaths a minute. The day before, she was breathing 45 breaths a minute, and this didn't seem to be a concern to them then. Why was this a concern now? 45 to 55 breaths a minute is not that different from each other. I tried it. I was also told they were taking her off of the 
Presidex completely. I question if these two things were okay to do and at the same time. I was told it was fine. I was trusting in the white coats blindly. I don't have the knowledge I thought it I thought they had. They gave her morphine in her arm and then left the room. I went on to read to Grace and she felt so cold. I peeked my head out of the room and asked to get a temperature on Grace and explained she felt cold. I was told I could cover Grace with a blanket, but no temp was taken. I questioned if it was normal for her to be cold, and I was told it was normal. I covered Grace with a blanket, but she just didn't feel right. I checked for a pulse and couldn't find one. I checked the hospital monitor and everything was dropping. I ran to get help and no one would help. I was told they did everything they could for my sister. I FaceTimed my parents and they told me to try and get someone in there again. We were all screaming for help, me in person and my parents on FaceTime. We were yelling to reverse what they did, help her. The nurses were all saying she was a DNR. One nurse even read off the computer that the doctor labeled race as a DNR, which they claimed they couldn't do anything about. My parents were yelling, she's not a DNR, she's not a DNR, help her, please help our little girl. Absolutely no one would help. There was an armed guard now outside Grace's room. Why would there be an armed guard? There was also approximately 30 to 40 nurses in the hall as it was around shift change. No one even moved. It was all over just like that, Grace was gone. I truly believe this hospital, I'm sorry. Mm, We'll just talk through a little bit about, are you going to finish it? I will do my best. I truly believe this hospital was only following protocols the entire time. Took myself every time Grace's oxygen numbers were low to go get help. Not the nursing staff being on top of this and helping on their own. And yet she was labeled ICU. It seemed no one cared for Grace and it showed through their actions. I even got the sense I was bothering them. In the end, when Grace's numbers weren't where they thought they should be based on the hospital monitors, they continued to only follow protocol because that was the next step them thank you jessica very much so scott how in the world did a dnr get recorded you certainly your family did not request that you didn't sign anything authorizing that and yet somehow that ended up on on grace's records it's, it's strange. I can't answer that question. Um, I can tell you that the morning, uh, the, the evening of October 12th, they called for the fifth time to pressure us for uh, a decision on a ventilator. And we did it. We said that we're going to process it again. You know, he spent an hour with us that evening. And so he called the next morning, Grace's last day, and asked for our decision. And we said, we don't want her to be on a ventilator. And so that was called DNI, do not intubate, not DNR. Um, So it doesn't seem like it's a mistake because if it was a mistake, when we said, give her, you know, reverse what's going on, um, she's not DNR, 
that would have overrode the doctor's order for a DNR. So they they were supposed to give her what was you know what we've learned now is there's a reversal drug available. They were supposed to give her that as soon as we said that. So you know I you know of course I can speculate and I have my own theories as to what happened and you know, I think it's we should dive into the into the protocol and the money because um, so Grace was on Medicaid so this is significant. Um, Medicare and Medicaid patients are not where um, where the big money is at for hospitals unless they can get them on a ventilator. So once we chose to not put her on a ventilator, which remember she did not need, but the hospital wanted to do make that decision on their own without without uh, our approval. Cindy had said, which I think is right, that Grace was worth more dead than alive. Well, uh, a week or so ago, I got in the mail the the amount that the hospital received from Medicaid for Grace. So for seven days, in the in the room, the hospital received eleven thousand seven hundred sixty-four dollars. That's sixteen hundred eighty dollars a day. They received thirteen thousand by taking her out. So just process that. Um, and, and more if, for her room, being a passive ICU. But still, it it was only the 1680 a day. So there's, I'm just going to take this on a little bit of a macro level. So you understand the, sure. the money. Sure. So these are the hospitals strangely get bonuses for um, following a government protocol for COVID. And they've been following the same protocol for two years. It makes no sense because they're killing people. Mm-hmm. So if they put the same money into research, um, it, it, this thing would be solved. Uh, which it, it actually is already solved. But I mean, if they would have these smartest people in the country spending the money on research versus bonuses for hospitals, it would be fantastic. The the Medicaid, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that's called CMS, um, there's some whistleblowers that work there. And they have computed that the average CARES Act bonus per COVID patient is $100,000. That's the average. That's the bonus. This isn't what they bill insurance. This is the bonus paid by the government. And so they get bonus, you know, the bonuses are based on a whole bunch of different things. So Cindy started going through these before. And so I'll just read these off. They get a fee for um, every required PCR COVID test in the emergency room or upon admission. They get an added bonus for each positive COVID test. They get another bonus for um, COVID once the patient's admitted to the hospital. They get a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill for the use of remdesivir. Uh, thankfully, that was not an issue with, with Grace. I mean, remdesivir is a killer. I mean, mm-hmm. You know that on your program. Yep. Uh, they get an ICU bonus for patients <laughs> on Presidex. The reason is as soon as a patient's on Presidex, they changed their status to ICU. And as Cindy said, they never changed rooms. The care never changed, but they got a bonus for Grace being on precedent. Um, of course, the real money is they get a large bonus if the patient is ventilated. And then then the death bonus that I already talked about. I mean, it's it's insane when you start looking at the numbers. Um, you yes. know, big hospital systems like like Ascension, so Grace died at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Appleton. 
you take they're part of a 142 hospital system um, ascension. I mean, they're they're making billions in payment in bonus payments. Can we show that? Uh, can we show that uh, the love of money uh, document, um, Spencer? This I, is what Scott's referring to. I don't think I sent that to Spencer, Mike. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, um, and I just put that together this last week, and I'm not really comfortable talking about it at length yet. But you know, okay. I, I got I, I want to eventually get that document out because it connects the dots as far as um, the it amount sure of. Does. Money. Right. Yeah, it sure does because I'm looking at it, <laughs> and, uh, I'm, and, and, I'm, and I'm wow. I know. I, I uh, my background before what I do now. I was, I'm a CPA, and so this was. I had figured I could find this stuff, and I started digging into it. And as I told you this morning on the phone, I mean, uh, God got me up Sunday morning at 3 a.m. and started working on this thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, there's it, the amount of money is is incredible. Well, so I yeah. just, there's one thing that else that I want to say, and then you can ask some more questions. But so Jess and I were in the room. Okay, so we were advocates in the room other than 44 hours. So and what we just explained is is unbelievable, unconscionable, immoral, all kinds of labels you could put put on it. So what do you think is happening in rooms where there's not an advocate? You know, it's way worse than what we just presented. Yes. Way worse. Um, so you combine no advocacy, which is in most rooms, the government bonuses, and then throw in the third thing, which is the third leg of the stool, which is they have immunity from liability. So they can get away with this stuff and you can't you can't uh, you can't sue them. But it's it's hard to it's hard to believe. So I mean they have a temptation. You know, scripture talks about temptation and they have a temptation that I believe they're submitting to that temptation and they're following a protocol blindly uh, yeah. because the temptation is right there in their face. Yes, yes, I, I would agree with you. So so the question at this point is, how does how does the situation change? What what can be done? What 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 would you suggest to people that perhaps have experienced the same thing or perhaps they have a loved one in the hospital right now? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So one one I've just been, uh, from my CPA perspective, I smile at that question because if we can get this out to everybody, nobody will go to the hospital and it'll shut them down because of lack of revenue. But mm-hmm. I don't think we get there. The I think that if people will use this as a wake up call to get educated, so they can get educated on what to do before going in the hospital. Uh, frontline doctors and there's others that have excellent protocols that work. Um, if you look at a, a country like India, India has almost four times the number of people as the United States, but only 60% of the deaths. So what's the reason? What's the difference? And and they're stacked up like cordwood over there versus we have a lot of room in the United States. And they're using ivermectin as an over-the-counter. So, I mean, that's a, a, an education piece. Um, getting educated on if you need to go to the hospital, which there's times you need to go to the hospital, get educated on what's involved there. You need to get oxygen. Um, you can come home with oxygen. You don't have to stay in the hospital on oxygen. If you go home, they'll prescribe oxygen. They'll prescribe a steroid. They'll prescribe the things that you need. You can have an advocate in the hospital. 
don't go in unless you have an advocate to de demand it. Uh, you can research the hospital ahead of time, although sometimes that's a little bit too late when you're uh, when you're not feeling well. Um, having the advocate, having your power of attorney papers ahead of time, making sure that the hospital understands that you don't want any decision relative to any meds made without your or your advocate's uh, consent. These are all things we missed. Of course, now hindsight's twenty twenty. We missed it all because you just assume they're they're after your best interest. You didn't think that they're they're out to do something else. Uh, the biggest thing I think that we we can uh, do maybe isn't about those details, but it's about um, you know praying for for the unbelieving doctors and nurses to. Um, to do some soul searching for the believing doctors and nurses to stand up for what they know is true. I mean, if, if we get more whistleblowers inside, I mean, there's people inside that know what's going on, mm -hmm. but of course they're losing their jobs, which I understand. Yeah. Um, actually, I want Cindy to share something relative to that because a nurse walked her out and I want her to share that story because it's, it's pretty significant. And then I, I want to share something from a scripture from a devotion I read this morning, because I think that, that may be um, where this all heads. So go ahead, dear. So we had an angel on our side the night that Jessica and I and our pastor um, followed Grace and Bonnie out of the hospital. Um, one of the girls that was a nurse that worked there, um, she bent down by me because I was in a wheelchair as pastor pushed me out. And she uh, said to me, she said, Mr. Cher, I want you to know that myself and several other nurses tonight don't believe Grace should have died. Mm. And so it was a red flag, but this nurse was willing to put her neck on the line to tell us that there were her, you know, other nurses along with her that knew something was not right that went on that night at that hospital. Wow. wow. Thank, thank you. Us researching and finding out we felt something wasn't right, but that just yeah. confirmed. Thank, thank you for sharing that, Cindy. Um, Scott, we've got just about a minute left. So we, you know, so as a country, we trust in men, uh, Christians, non-Christians, we all trust in men. What does that, what does that look like? We trust in the school system. We trust in the hospital system. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of people that trust in, in men, specifically Trump, for example. We shouldn't be trusting in anything that's man-made or a man. And you have, if you have that mindset, it's helpful. Um, the scripture I want to share, the devotion I read this morning, um, and I think this is, is somewhat of the bigger purpose that we have in sharing this. So this is Acts 26, 17, and 18. Uh, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this message that we're sharing, you know, obviously, you know, Grace was a special girl to us and we want to honor her. We don't want her death to be in vain. So obviously we want to share for that reason. We don't want other people to die in a hospital and be educated. But, you know, bigger picture, people are, you know, why is all this crazy stuff happening? People are blind. The majority of our population is blind. And if we can use this story to open up people's eyes and see what's going on. And then they have a chance to turn and look 
look to someone who can save them. And that's really a, a lot bigger picture. And, you know, this, this, uh, this is a small story in that, but I mean, it's, it's big to us. Yes, that's right. Amen. Amen. Well, Scott, Cindy, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Uh, folks, um, is there a way, Scott, that uh, viewers can contact you if they would like to do that? Sure. We um, The easiest way right now would be through Grace's GoFundMe page. Okay. Uh, Spencer, can you put that up or no? Yep. So my email is available uh, through Grace's GoFundMe page. Okay. Okay. Yep. And so you can definitely do it that way. Do you want me to just give my email here, Mike? Okay, there's Grace's GoFundMe. Right. I see it yep. on the screen. So yep. if you go onto Grace's GoFundMe page, um, there's a way to contact me uh, via email on her page. So okay. that would be that would be a fine way to do it. Yes. Is that okay, Mike? That's that beautiful. Up? Yep, yep, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate it so much. And our prayers are certainly with you. God bless Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. You're very welcome. That's all we have time for today, friends. Please share this show with with your friends and on your platforms and social media pages and get the word out about what has happened to this family, what's happening across America. If, If we'll raise awareness together, we can push back against this and put a stop to it. That's what needs to happen. God bless you. We'll see you next time here on Wisconsin Christian News TV. 